you know, I, I say real estate can turn the most calm, cool, collected person completely nuts in about three and a half seconds. And if you're not willing to navigate that and work through that, you really don't have any business doing real estate with residential transactions and people buying and selling a home for themselves. Welcome to the Urban Connect podcast. I'm Jennifer Shambo, the broker and owner of Urban Provision Realtors. I'm excited for you to be tuning in today. And that probably means you're a buyer, seller, or homeowner looking to gain more clarity on Texas real estate. I'm sure everybody has probably heard the quote, home is where the heart is. If I know what I've learned from navigating relationships, it seems like anytime there's mention of the heart, there's a trailing mention of emotions and memories. If I take that a step further, there's also laser focus, blinders, even sometimes frustration or even anger for the part of the process. Real estate is no different than navigating a relationship as it involves two people who exude raw emotions for one reason or another. I have said this statement countless of times. Realtors often end up inheriting the role of a couple's counselor when overseeing a transaction to the finish line. It is because whether someone is buying or selling a home, life changes invoked a laundry list of emotions. Every twist and turn in the process has the potential to spark new emotions, whether it be bittersweet, stressful, or frustrated, and other times can feel more like salt being shaken into a wound. Realtors tirelessly try to keep the transactional train on its tracks in order for both parties to end with a successful transaction. This is why I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Heather Thomas and Dr. Chad cardini Challenger. Heather Thomas is a licensed independent social worker and a certified alcohol and drug counselor. With over 15 years of experience in the mental health field, she has worked both with mental health therapists and an administration. She has spent the majority of her career as the director of outpatient services with a community mental health center. She also served as a regional director for a substance abuse provider. And recently, Heather began a new role as a director of counseling at a university. Heather's passion is people. She has served individuals from all walks of life and continues to appreciate the depths of our capacity to learn, heal, and grow. Dr. Chad Cardini Trollinger is a faculty member at Iowa State University Leadership Studies Program and the owner of the Academic Revolution. Prior to returning to higher education, Chad was a successful real estate broker and trainer in Austin, Texas. Chad leverages 25 years of a professional experience in real estate training and development in higher education and is passionate about helping others develop their own leadership knowledge, skills, and abilities so that they have the ability to positively influence themselves and others. He leads with thoughtful and purposeful reflection, intentional inclusion of the widest variety of voices possible. And by doing what he says he will do, Chad's research interests include higher education, faculty development, cultural development, and brain-based learning. He's an award-winning instructor, an ethical, just, and inclusive servant leader, and is fully committed to helping individuals, teams, organizations, and businesses get from where they are to where they want to be. I asked Heather and Chad to be guests on Urban Connect as their wisdom inherited through a combination of higher learning, time spent digesting an abundant amount of published research combined with their real-life experiences, which afford our listeners the opportunity to gain the deepest understanding of emotions and how they play a role in the successes and failures of buyers and sellers. Chad and Heather, I am honored to host you as a guest and welcome to Urban Connect. Thank you. Good to be here, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you both. 
I want to start with the fact, and Chad's probably going to chuckle when I say this because he has this, you know, history in, in real estate, but realtors often tell their clients to take the motion of buying and selling. But based on my experience of having said those exact words <laughs> hundreds of times and, you know, helping people with their transactions and being both the buyer and seller, that seems like a very tall ask, which, and it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. So Heather, I'd like to start off with you. And I want to talk about some research that Dr. Scott Hotel, who is a professor of uh, psychology at neuroscience at Duke University, compiled that equates memory to space and how those memories have made people carry more value than any monetary figure. So it seems based on his findings that the human nature, it's, it's just human nature to struggle and it's to separate those emotions from memories when they're tied to space. So does this mean that a seller can't become an emotionalist in a transaction? It does mean that. It's very clear that it is impossible to separate emotions from the buying and selling process. And part of that research that he's done really even shows where in the brain this lights up. So it's in our ventromedial prefrontal cortex that involves emotions, reward, value, motivation. So he would most definitely say it's not possible because it's really associating or the, the research shows associated space and memory together. It is linked. And then if you throw on top of it, the largest financial transaction of your life, which the research doesn't specifically identify, but it doesn't take much to make that leap. This is going to be an emotional, an emotional process for sure. I was telling you, I know the other day I was mentioning this. You would think even those of us who are in the field of like learning different aspects of managing emotions, highly professional people that we would have that figured out. But um, just thinking about this podcast have reminded me of a psychiatrist that I work very, very closely with, who is a great example of even those who might be very emotionally intelligent struggle with this. So, so here was a guy who had been in the field of psychiatry for years and he happened to just ironically be in the process of selling his home to another psychiatrist who he didn't know at the time. Oh my gosh, so that's a double whammy. <laughs> it is. It's fascinating, right? So you have a buyer and a seller, both psychiatrists. Well, I found this story out years later, but what had happened was about 15 years ago, he sold his home and he was upset that this other psychiatrist had the nerve to request an in-home inspection, right? Which you and I would say, that's a pretty normal occurrence. And then as an outcome of that, the other side, the buying psychiatrist requested some changes, which he was very upset with and very much personalized it. And the only reason I found out about this over 15 years later was by a turn of events, the psychiatrist who bought the home became his uh, supervisor, a medical director, because <sighs> the companies merged. And he had said to me, I am not going to do well with this. So 15 years later, he still struggled by the organizational structure he now had to report to because of this home selling experience. So if we can imagine, it's hard for everyone. I mean, everybody, no one escapes this. It is a, it's a struggle. Yeah, it sounds like it doesn't matter who you are. And then I want to take it a step further because I found there's only one person that can take the emotion out of it. And it's, I found it to be what I call the serious investor. The one who is a purely numbers, there's no memory, there's no, I'm never going to live there. Is there any science behind the investor's ability other than it's just numbers and they don't really care? It's a 
it's a hard yes or a hard no? There is some. There's actually something, an economic theory that's called the endowment effect. You're going to relate to this as soon as I say this. So there is um, this concept or this theory says that people, like let's say the seller, overvalue what they already own and they undervalue what they are going to purchase, even if those things are of equally assessed value. So the endowment effect says just by virtue of owning something, we may have a tendency of overvaluing it. So an investor is somewhat, you know, protected by that. They don't own this thing yet. They're still in that period of figuring out what they want to do. They'll also have a very clear strategy of what they're investing, what their clear criteria is, and the ability to just walk away. So it's a very different process, but you can see how that endowment effect can certainly impact buyers and it will impact investors in some sense, like in a different context of economics, like buying and selling stocks. It's possible that investor would then overvalue something that they have purchased. But mostly we would see it in this sense that they are somewhat shielded because they don't own own it yet. They don't own the property, if that makes sense. Or they Yeah, that doesn't make sense. And I've seen them be able to turn that brain off when they do own it, when they're going to sell it too, because they're like, it's purely I'm going to sell it for this number and I'm not going to sell it if I can't get that number. And it's clear they know the criteria. They know when they're going to sell it. Like if this, Mm -hmm. this and this happens, I sell. Right. So Chad, I know that you've moved on from real estate. It's been a while since you've done that, but you know, those insights and knowledge that you obtained didn't go away overnight. And I know that you've personally navigated some transactions both before and after, you know, you hung up your license. So can you elaborate on your emotions when you navigated those buys and sells while you were licensed, even like you said, you know, educated, licensed, telling your clients to become emotionless. Um, and then after you weren't licensed, were you able to set aside those emotions? Sure. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. One of the things I, I do feel like I should point out is I never suggested that my clients should take the emotion out. I suggested they should leave that up to me. So they can use me as this, or they could use me as a sounding board. They could say whatever they wanted to me. That's great. I represent them and I work in their best interests. Mm-hmm. What was important though, was that that relationship was only between myself and them. And for the most part, I was able to, to navigate that relatively successfully. A lot of it had to do with kind of the storytelling that I said, you know, here's the stuff we're headed for. These are the areas of turbulence that are going to come up. And when that happens, I'm going to remind you, we've already talked about this, and this is what we're going to do. And every single time I did that, hey, remember, we talked about this. Now it's time. Let's execute. We've already talked about how to handle this. So that was kind of a, a, a win, I think, for me a lot of times. Selling my own property, you know, I sold the, the first house I ever owned. And gosh, there was a lot of pride with that house. You know, it was my first my first big thing I did all by myself. And that house provided refuge for me when I had cancer. It provided income for me when I leased it out, when I was in a relationship. When that relationship ended, magically my tenant also ended. So that house again provided me safety and a place. And then it flooded and it was a total loss along with much of the stuff in it. And thankfully... There were so many good things going on in my life at that time. I was able to 
for the most part, like, yeah, oh, dang it. That was my house. And I was just making it beautiful again after this, this fool trashed it. And oh, I never got to finish it. But it always provided for me. And it was a thing. And I think, you know, coming to terms with losing most of the things in that house really helped let go of the structure itself. And it was able to provide, you know, a pretty nice chunk of cash for us to put down on a new house and our new life together in a new state. That said, when we got to this new state, right, real estate was quite a journey for us. We learned on the way here to Iowa with our two moving trucks filled to the brim and our little Yorkie sitting beside me that the guy we were supposed to purchase a house from decided not to sell it to us. And so here we are, two 32-foot trucks, a little Yorkie, winter in Iowa. And hey, yeah, you can pick your earnest money up at my attorney's office. Yeah, that's never fun. (laughs) That's some emotion to work through. And then there were two of us, right? It wasn't just me. It was myself and my husband. So having the experience that I had and the knowledge of it, thankfully, um, John and I both kind of align on things. But when things start to feel yucky, we stop fighting it. Okay, this was not meant to be. We're out. It's not worth the hassle. But a lot of my professional experience came into play in managing his expectations and his emotions and just saying, you know, none of this is personal. It just is what it is. Kind of the same thing. We have bought and sold three properties here in the last 13 years. So although I've not practiced for over a decade, I still have that memory and look, there's just stuff that's going to happen. And I will, I will explain real estate to friends that are like, oh my gosh, I think I want to be a realtor. You know, I, I say real estate can turn the most calm, cool, collected person completely nuts in about three and a half seconds. And if you're not willing to navigate that and work through that, you really don't have any business doing real estate with residential transactions and people buying and selling a home for themselves. Commercial, totally different story. Investment, totally different story. Now, Chad, back to your house in Austin. You, I mean, you navigated, you had the flood, you had mentally lost. I mean, you'd lost everything. Then you mentally went through, I lost everything. Okay, now I need to let this go. But it's kind of hard to say how you would have handled it differently had that home not flooded. You probably would have had more raw emotion to selling if you'd hadn't lost everything. Yeah, maybe. I think the the really nice distraction that I had was I had just gotten married to the man of my dreams and we were off on this brand new journey together. And I had already moved out for the most part of the house. Most of my mm-hmm. stuff was there, but my heart, there was just a tiny piece of it left there. My heart was in this beautiful house that my husband had built and renovated and the journey we were about to embark on together. So that was a real nice distraction. So it sounds like that from... If you're trying to give a tip to a buyer, think about where you're headed, not where you were. Sure. Yeah, that's a great. And with a caution, right? Because sometimes transactions don't work out even after we get them under contract, right? A lot of people think Mm -hmm. it's under contract. I'm golden. And the truth is (laughs) you're not golden until you sign on the dotted line and the funds get wired. That's when you're golden. So I always also try to instill there is always another house. There's always another house. This is just a place. This is sticks with stuff around it and some paint and some pretty furniture. That's all this thing is. There are more of them. So when our transaction fell through on the way here, there'll be another house. Turns out a lot of times that bust is a really, really nice gift that 
we don't understand the full value of that gift for a long time. No, it's true. Now, that this is a question for both of you because I, we now know, based on the research we just talked about, it's hard to turn off those emotions memory about your memories in your space. So what would be your best advice to curb those emotions? We talked a little bit with you, Chad, about some of this, but if you're moving on from your house or let's call your, let's call your house a relationship, you're moving on from your house. If you can't turn it off, how can you curb it? How can you, Heather, what are your best tips? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the number one thing is to accept it. I think that's the first thing. Accept the feelings that are there. Remember the stuff, you know, put on a Sarah McLaughlin CD and listen. <laughs> that's what I did back <laughs> in the day from breakups, right? So remember, remember the good stuff, value that and remember that. But then also remember it wasn't perfect either. You know, it's it's like Chad saying it is, it is a house. So it had its limitations. There's a reason you're leaving it. There's a reason for the end of this house or this relationship, whether it's positive or negative. But I think that's the first thing is really just accept it and name it, name the feelings and then celebrate it and grieve it both, right? You can have both. I think the other thing is to really using reality terms, reappraise it, reappraise your thoughts about it because it can be good and bad. And what we talk a lot about in therapy, one aspect is really learning to recognize what's a helpful thought and what is a hurtful thought. So once you've been through that process, limit yourself or recognize it. How, how often am I going to let myself get stuck in those unhelpful thoughts that are really, you know, oh, my babies were, I brought them home from the hospital here, which I've gone through that too, right? Or mm-hmm. this happened here, like knowing that it's not a good place to live in. You can visit that thought, but don't stay there. So remembering to reframe those things, like we just mentioned, Really think about where are you going? What's the future? What hope do you have? Think about a new place. If you've already got one purchased, think about how you're going to decorate. How are you going to decorate the living room? How are you going to create your whatever it is, your Zen place or whatever it is that you're excited about moving? So changing your thoughts to that are really some of the probably most tangible ways you can allow yourself to feel, but also encourage yourself to move forward. No, I agree because I feel like some of those those thought, thoughts that aren't going to be productive are going to derail you later. They're going to make it harder for you to focus on the important things. For sure. And they can help further that endowment effect we were talking about earlier. I mentioned just where you start to overvalue your own home. And we do that by those emotions that we live in that are yours, right? That's not, it's not the buyers, it's yours. And then it's going to have that kind of negative effect too. That just serves to hurt you in the end. Now, Chad, do you have anything to add? One of the things to keep in mind is, and I say this over and over and over, and of course, a lot of people don't want to hear it. Hire a good realtor, listen to the realtor, know why you've decided to sell. What, are you bored in the house? Is it not meeting your needs? Do you not like the area? Did some neighbors move in next door that you're like, I got to go. Um, <laughs> know why you're doing that. And Jennifer, I don't know if you if you remember the five, six, and seven reasons that I I learned at a a workshop way back in the day, but like asking someone, hey, you know, first time I'm meeting a client. So, you know, what what's leading you to want to move? And so the client will say, oh, well, uh, we we started with one kid and now we have two and we'd like to have a third. And so the house is getting a little uh, too small and we'd like to move. Okay, so that's that's the one. 
When you get down to the two, the three, the four, the five, six, and seven, when you get down to the five, six, and seven, what you learn is that when this seller was young, they were out in the front yard playing soccer with their brother and the ball went out in the street. The brother ran after, got hit by a car. Well, now we're getting to why you want to sell. You want a bigger place with a fenced yard so your kids can be safe and play. Now I know as the agent how I can help you meet those needs. So Mm -hmm. that's a giant piece of advice is really know why are you doing what what you're wanting to do. Right. It's having those deep conversations beyond just the, um, the initial layers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's always another one. There's always another one. If it falls apart, oh gosh, that really sucked. We were so excited about it. Guess what? We'll find another place. Well, that's going to happen. I mean, we've been through a shortage inventory. We've been through, you know, lots of inventory and as Chad and I both know, and Heather, you probably know too, real estate flows, right? There's a lot, there's not a lot. There's you lose some, you win some. So, you know, don't set yourself up as for a total loss. But, you know, now that it's apparent to, it's almost nearly impossible to be emotionless and we shouldn't be emotionless in a transaction. We should just curb it or understand how to basically redirect it. You know, Chad, based on your experience, experience of selling while licensed versus not, I want to do a little, I want to call it a task with you. I want to help the listener set themselves up for success when managing those emotions. And before they even embark on the real estate journey, before they're looking at houses, before they're talking to their lender. So I'll go first. So I've always say that you have to, let's say sell, you have to make sure that you're truly ready to sell or truly ready to buy. If you're not truly ready, there's no sense in even getting started. So is there anything that you can think of that you would tell someone that, how would you manage emotions? Like some of these things that if you're not sure that you're going to move forward or like, how would you set yourself up for managing those emotions? Well, you know, this is, This is an answer to a lot of questions people ask me. (laughs) Heather will like this. Do you see a therapist? Um, (laughs) Honestly, we as a species have not learned how to manage ourselves, our emotions. We don't have role models most of the time that display for us healthy and acceptable ways to navigate emotion. What we do have is reality TV, which is a complete shit show. If you're taking relationship or behavior advice from reality TV, I don't even want to work with you because, no, we have to be able to to have resources to help us manage our emotions. One absolutely is our agent, right? But sometimes, especially, you know, when maybe you're leaving because job loss, what I don't want to get into that. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. But are you really emotionally ready for this? Do you completely understand the lift, like the rest of your life that's already hectic is going to continue. And now we're going to add this massive financial thing filled with emotion. And we're going to ask you to trust us as a professional that you may or may not know all that well. Are you really ready to do that? You know, I I feel like I'm echoing a little bit what you said too, but if you're not really ready, if you're not willing to go through the journey of the transaction, maybe you shouldn't be. No, I mean, I feel like that probably each thing we say at the end, we're going to trail. If you're not really ready, then don't do it, you know, because it's a 
complex process. There's lots of moving bits to it. And you, one thing that whether you buy or sell, doesn't matter. You don't want to get knee deep in something. And like a seller, in the state of Texas, a seller can't get out once they're knee deep in, right? A buyer can, but a seller cannot. I've always told people to grab a pen and paper and make the list like a visual and make those list of reasons. Like why do you want to move? Why do you want to buy? Why do you want to sell? You know, what joy are you going to get out from it? You know, what are you going to accomplish from this? What struggles are you going to have with it? You know, what do you need out of, you know, X, Y, and Z? So, you know, I always, you know, tell my buyers to make a three list, a, you know, a must have list, a can't stand list and a I'll compromise. I, I'd like to have this, but I would buy if it didn't have this list. And what I found is when someone writes out that list, it changes and evolves over time. And often they're buying something completely different than what they put on that list from the very time they wrote that list. Yeah, that's that's one of like, if someone would come to me and say, I want this, 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 and this, no exceptions. I was like, oh boy, here we go. Because chances are amazingly high that what they buy is none of that. The folks who are like, oh, you know, I kind of want maybe in this area, maybe around this kind of style. Bleh. That's so much easier. You know, one more thing. I don't, do you remember my uh, HGTV rule? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I swear by that. And it kind of lines up with that whole reality TV thing. I had a rule when we worked together. Home and garden television is off limits. Mm-hmm. On home and garden TV, chances are really, really high, like 98%. None of that actually happened. None of that went down the way that was displayed on TV. It's completely manufactured BS. And people are creating their hopes and dreams based on false information. So there were two times when I was like, yeah, nope, we're done. You just broke the rule and, and we're out. Talk about that, Chad, makes me think of um, an an advocacy of reality TV. My daughter's been watching a show called Indian Matchmaker, and she says, like you, you're only going to get 70% of that list, max. So you've got to compromise. So maybe some reality TV does align. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's getting better as it evolves. But But yeah, same concept, you know, the the home of your dreams or the man or woman of your dreams still might be 70% of that must have list. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Or, or 20%. Right. You, know, <laughs> you know, my my example where I make them write it down when I first see them, I say, give me that list. I'm going to keep it. You're not going to keep it. I will set your first search that way and I will put an envelope and I will give it back to you when you close. And I generally throw them across the table, their list, and they go, what is this? And I go, well, after they've signed their paperwork, please open it. Yeah. And they bought something completely different than what was on that list. So the next buy, when they're going to sell and buy again, they just listen a lot easier the second time around because they realized that what I had envisioned for them to buy was what they ended up buying. Okay, so let's talk about emotionally preparing. So it's important to emotionally prepare for the selling process, I guess even for the buying process, but... The once the home is listed for sale, the a seller opens themselves to scrutiny. And we talked earlier about the, you know, psychiatrist who listed it and someone who came in to buy it. And, you know, there's scheduled showings and people nitpick. And then there's inspections where people, you know, the buyer says or the seller says, my home is perfect. Right. 
and it's really not, and but it's perfect in their eyes. So Heather, what are some of the best ways to detach from your home when you're trying to sell it? That's a great question. So part of it, what we talked about, I think, right? Acknowledging that this is going to be stressful and accepting accepting the emotions that come with it. I think having the awareness that this is going to be hard is really important. And the awareness that you are trying to shift to the seller's perspective, trying to shift mentally that this is a product, even though you're attached right to the space and the memories. So that's one is really acknowledging again that this can be a challenge. And then as you guys both said, I think making sure you're ready to sell. And a, a key to that too is if you find yourself, as you both have clearly experienced, as the seller, if you find yourself unhappy with your realtor professional or arguing with them or or resisting that in any way, taking that as a sign, again, that awareness, taking it as a sign that maybe you're not ready to sell if you're not open to the professionals in the field because you are not the professional. The seller is not the all-knowing professional. And so if you start to feel like you are, that's a big clue that you're not ready for this. And then I think too, you know, in my non-reality experience, you know that you really got to declutter, right? That's a part of their process. Get a lot of your personalized items out of the home is really critical for it to sell well. And I think rather than resisting that, it's really coming alongside that process because in doing that, it lets you detach more as well. So if you're taking a lot of your personal items out, putting them in storage or wherever they're going, just to make it a, a more presentable home, that also is an ability really to get that clutter out of your mind too. It's a process that ties your mind and body together and creating a different physical space. So it's a step towards that detaching. So, so don't resist that process because realtors are probably going to tell you to do that. So rather than resist, just embrace it. I think embrace the, the, the challenge to do that. It's funny. I had a client who I told to do exactly that. When we got done, there was nothing in the house. It was, it was completely barren. And I was like, oh, we need to add some stuff back in. So, you know, at that point we needed a stager. Yeah. <laughs> and the stager came back in and made the house so beautiful that he didn't want to sell it again. Oh my goodness. So, so he's like, I love my house now. I want to stay just because now it's more beautiful than it was before you had it. You might want to understand what you're selling before that. Right. Again, happened. that goes back to why are you moving? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That person really wasn't ready to move. There are what I call the triple D's in real estate that when we talk about emotions, there's death, divorce, and downsizing. We talked about downsizing a little bit, but these are highly emotional um, milestones in one's life. They add complexity. What I found that rings true in every scenario is these emotions are constantly evolving. They're magnified beyond measure. My best analogy for this is riding on a roller coaster. You get started, you free fall, you hit a valley, you jolt, you hit the brakes, the ride's over. So for that rider, that was like, an it was an eternity. But for, in reality, it happened in such a flash. So I want to kind of peel back these layers because I think that there are a lot of the, the death, divorce, and downsizing. These happen when you sell often. And so I think these are very, I would call pillar reasons. So Let's start with death. So when someone passes on, it's not just like my emotional state. If I was the seller, it's those around you, you know, your sisters, your brothers, your aunts, your uncles, your other family members that come into play. So 
how would someone selling due to death, what's the best way, Heather, for someone to navigate with the least amount of emotion or like, how can a family member or even executor pause? Let's take a break. Let's get into a good headspace before we move it along. I would say one critical thing is really trying to keep some things separate. So when you're talking about the logistics of things like the home sale, make sure like timing is good. Like you're not in the midst of maybe different kind of critical funeral arrangements or some of those things that are happening right away that need to be addressed that really are the grief of the missing and the loss of the person. With that said, families are messy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we all have different levels of dysfunction. So even before someone passes, if you know that there are just like just disagreements at the surface already, I would, depending on your family, you could have conversations the sooner the better. Address the things you disagree with right away to try to help this process be better later on or the sooner after someone's passing, the better. um, So they don't become full-fledged really disputes or arguments. The other thing that I think can be helpful is that there is there are legitimate legal processes that have to happen. And some of that can be helpful in detaching. It can feel cold probably at times, but there are definite, you guys will know much more than I do, but you got to know, like, is this thing going to go into probate? Is there a trust? Was there a living will? Like what kinds of legal situation was around this, the property too? So if you don't know those things, then you got to go in recognizing, I don't know what I'm in for. It's going to take patience and education because it's overwhelming to face those things in addition to the loss of whoever just passed away. So it's complex. And I think as an executor, especially if you're an executor and you don't know what you're doing, definitely seek help, I think would be helpful. But as often as possible, acknowledging that the house is not the person. So there too, we're going to put all, you know, it's one more piece where I'm putting memories and grief and loss on this physical space, but maybe doing something from a tangible perspective. Maybe it would even be like having a beautiful picture of the house and put in a really good frame. Like it's very hard for you to let go of the house, get a picture, frame it and put it somewhere you'll see it all the time. Yeah. I remember when my, my mom passed in 2007 and my stepdad kept the house, but when my stepdad passed, um, my mom's and stepdad's will, you know, came into play. And for some odd reason, this, I mean, like you've said, there's, there's logistics and there's legal things that need to happen. And I recall that my mom thought it was wise to have myself and my two siblings as all co-executors which is messy when you're trying to get three people to decide on what needs to happen. Right. So, so the less complicated layers. So it, you know, finally the attorney advised me to ask my sister who was, it wasn't her expertise. She really didn't know what she was doing. You know, she, I could still go to her and ask her questions, but like ask her, did she mind taking a step back from an executor standpoint? Right. Because there truly needs to be one person and a deciding factor. And that person is tasked by the state to, to make sure that they're doing properly for the estate, right? So my advice from a real estate perspective is to get the least complex legal layers because it doesn't, then all the, those issues um, from a bickering standpoint go away. Absolutely. And I think like even speaking personally, the oldest of my siblings happens to probably be the most intelligent, emotionally intelligent person in our family. 
So it, that's who I would look at. If I look at my kids, I wouldn't even look based on age. I would look at like who can separate the best, who can do these things that we're talking about really well, um, or who's fair and, and can separate to some degree. And then who's going to seek help to help through this? Because that executor may need help. So let's move on to divorce. The second D, you know, divorce is complicated. It's sticky before and it's sticky during the selling of the house I found found has been that key catalyst that pushes everything else generally forward. That's the last thing that most divorcees navigate. They've navigated almost everything else. Almost. It's just then when they get to the, the final end, they're selling splitting assets. So you know, that milestone can be that turning point. But I know that Todd and I have seen, you know, couples navigate the space and then they let those emotions slow down or just flat out derail. You know, we talked about um, death. Is there a different way to let go or table emotion for the sake of just navigating a transaction that gets you to the where you need to be in the in the process? Grief is grief. Like what we've talked about quite a bit, you know, there's going to be emotions. I think the other thing that's a little trickier maybe with divorce too is just whatever surrounded that divorce can be very tricky. So um, there's something we talk about that makes me think of with this question. We talk about sometimes with therapy and with trauma, we talk about how there is a painful event that happens and it's unavoidable. It happens like in this case, the divorce, it occurred. It's a painful event. It's there. But then we can add what we call rings of suffering around that said event. So it depends what state we're in for, do we want to drag this out? Do we want to make him pay for this, him or her? Do we want to, you know, we know it's harder if this thing takes a while to sell. Like there can just be things that we do that can really prevent the process from going smoother. And it may be intentional. It may be unintentional too. We might not realize we're doing it just in wanting to still hang on for whatever reason. So I think, again, it comes back to really the awareness and who really is Maybe I'm thinking of this in a cynical way, but who, if, if you're dragging it out or there's suffering involved that you're like, that our actions are causing, really looking at who does it ultimately hurt because it's going to hurt yourself more in the end than the other person. So that's what comes to my mind. Maybe, maybe all divorces aren't that ugly, but mine went pretty cynical in a place where, yeah, it hurts. And again, let's see if there's a really positive separation if there could be a word for positive in this sense, but if it's separation as good terms as possible, you still have to look at what's ahead of you because there's still so much there behind, but finding that place of acceptance is really, I think about being okay with where you're at, where you got to so that you can be hopeful and and look forward to the future. I'm curious. I mean, maybe this isn't the time for it, but I'd be curious about some of your examples of some that haven't gone well to look at, you know, I bet you guys can see in some ways, these realtors are like counselors in a sense, because you are helping people navigate their emotions. I mean, that's, that's just what it is. Well, what I've experienced is there's a lack of communication generally in these settings. It's they're navigating, they're communicating through an attorney or not communicating at all. One of my examples, it's ingrained in the back of my head still today. And this happened probably my second year in business. And I've almost been in the business 20 years. And so husband, wife divorcing, I knew wife, I knew husband loosely, but they, they knew I was communicating to them both. I communicated everything to both parties because that's what realtors should be doing. We shouldn't be going to one source and having them, you know, telephone it over because that never works well. But 
they were at the closing table and it was a situation where they were divorcing, but they were also short selling. So basically they didn't, they couldn't sell for what they needed, their mortgage, and they had a loss on the table. If you have a short sell, you sign a document, uh, basically 1099, it says in your losses, you could potentially get taxed on. So the husband didn't, this situation didn't want to sign that document, even though we had already talked about this. And he literally almost derailed the closing because she wouldn't take ownership of some of that loss on the taxes at the end of the year. And so, I mean, I think it was four hours and we were still there trying to decide how they were going to split up stuff. Wow. So all of it could have been avoided, but I mean, just lack of communication, who's going to, like you said, ding to the hardest and like, who's going to come out, you know, on higher on the mountain than the other person is generally what is the worst of it all. My business has evolved to more um, referral based and, you know, I'm not working with just anybody that falls in my lap. I truly want to make sure. And I've learned my lesson with divorced couples. I have to sit down with you and you have to agree to the way I'm going to do business and that we're not going to derail things at the last minute. And we're going to be on the same page from the very beginning. And if they're not, they're not my client. Well, maybe in some of those senses, like, and this might not apply, but I, I would imagine you might even look at it. If they're still paying, let's say they are paying a mortgage that it's not in foreclosure or something like that going on, that you can turn to some back to base things, right? Like you can say, okay, you're going to continue to pay $2,000 a month and split that until this sells. And it could be another six months until this sells. So let's talk about how much those taxes are. And is that not worth it? Then six more months of this, et cetera. So maybe some of those fact-based approaches can help help minimize the overpowering emotional aspects that can happen. The one I remember, they were friends of my husband's and they really liked me. And they put in the divorce decree that I would be the one that sold the house. So then I'm trapped in their divorce too. And then similar thing happened, short sale, argument about, you know, who's going to pay the the tax, potential tax on the loss, blah, 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 blah. And it's a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Please don't ever put your realtor's name in the actual divorce. <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway from yeah, that. Because it's hard to get it out. Yeah. So um, let's move on to downsize. And I put downsize in because this is where a lot of the motion happens, but there's a, there's another layer to it. So basically it's uh, fueled by the re- reluctance of letting go. Like too many memories we talked about before. My child came home from the hospital. Yeah. So I raised everyone. Someone broke a leg. Someone got married. But memories are memories. It doesn't matter if you're downsizing or just selling. So, you know, Chad, I know that you and John, you moved from Austin to Des Moines and he was selling the home that he had built and made his own. And it, there was lots of memories there for for many reasons, right? So, you had a fantastic idea about how you enabled him to still have those memories today. Yeah. So when we decided to move, it was actually his idea. Um, but the home that we lived in was the home he bought. His first, you know, his first big adult thing that he painstakingly renovated to a, a beautiful place with the intention of it being a home where he could be with his partner or even just with himself safe, not challenged, loved the way he is. And so as you might imagine, you know, first of all, I come bouncing in and now we're sharing this place. And then he's like, hey, I think we should move to Iowa. Well, 
that means we're selling all of our stuff. So the thought of letting go of, of that physical structure that he had worked so hard on, you know, his own blood, sweat and tears in that was a really big lift. And the th- thing he was most proud of is, look, I, I took this thing that was kind of a dump and I made it beautiful. So in there were two things I did to make that as smooth as it could be for the two of us. And we were super lucky to be in a market where you'd put something, I don't know if you remember this, Jennifer, it was 2013, you put something in the market in Austin and it's going to be under contract in less than 24 hours, probably less than 12. So in order to come, because I had been through some transactions with my ex, I knew pricing could be a potential hidden point. So the first thing I did was hired an appraisal or an appraiser to establish market value for us. Because I, regardless if it was too high, too low, I wasn't 100% sure on how the market was going to react to the price. So I wanted to excuse myself from that. So we hired a really well-known appraiser in Austin who came in, did the appraisal, gave the document to John. He was so happy to see that number um, and even questioned, oh my God, is this right? And I'm like, yeah, it's probably pretty right. That's one of the best appraisers in town. So there was that, that helped a tremendous amount. The other thing I did is when we took the photos, rather than me taking the photos, and I, you know, I have a graphic design background. I take pretty darn good photos, but we hired a professional photographer with this photographer's permission, took all the beautiful photos of this place and made a hardbound book for him. And it was only him. All of my stuff was, was not there. It was only his. And so that was something that he still has and he still shows to people today, you know, uh, what, 10 years later, look, this is the house that I built and it was mine. And I did, I worked on it while I was traveling the world and I went for months with no kitchen and the, the refrigerator was in the garage and I had a microwave and a hot plate in the bathroom. And so he still mm-hmm. has those memories. He can still show the beautiful home and we can talk about how that thing that was so important to him helped us get on our way just like the house I had totally different circumstances to to leaving mine but both of us walked out of Austin with a little over 100 grand in cash and were able to start this new life together my memory of my house is there I have some digital photos it's not that big a deal his was a big deal so he has that physical tangible book that he still he looks through and he tells stories about the things that happened in this room and on that piece of furniture and in this spot in the backyard and stuff like that. So that really, really helped. So he's still living in it today. He's still, in he still has a very fresh yeah. memory of it today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that idea. I feel like every seller who is in that space that John was in when we, he sold that house needs to have a book. And um, I would encourage more realtors to do that. So let's talk about pride versus pricing, because I think pride gets in the way a lot of pricing. And, you know, Chad, you're going to probably nod your head yes to this and probably um, talk about it a little bit. But, you know, there's no denying that homeowners are prideful. We know they are. Um, It shows by leaps and bounds when they morph into a seller and then it radiates like the sunshine. As soon as those numbers crunch and we're trying to get a price to, to list for you know, but those sometimes those emotional biases translate to hurdles and then it's causing seller to overprice their home. So it's not always pride that causes to overprice. Sometimes it's something as someone being inconvenienced. Maybe it's a single mom with a young kid and saying, well, I'll overprice it because moving's hard and, you know, I don't want someone in my house and 
I can take a few extra months to sell. So Heather, when someone's armed with facts and not their pride or what they think, what happens with emotions when facts come into play? Well, I think of it as a neutralizing agent, right? If a person is open to the facts. So if I am hard and set on this is what it's going to be worth and I'm not taking anything less than that, facts may not do you any good. So it depends on the state that that person is in. Some people can deny things, you know, as long as they want to. But if there's an openness to what the reality is, right? So this market analysis, what are comp homes showing, all those things. If you're open to that, then it can help neutralize. Think of it similarly in the therapy world too. You know, sometimes we tell ourselves things that are not fact-based at all, and that can be harmful. And so part of what cognitive behavioral therapy is, is looking at what are the thoughts you're telling yourself? And again, are these helpful? Are these hurtful? What, what evidence is there for and against this? And so I think of that even, even in this context of when I'm looking for what evidence is there for and against this, this price even in this sense. It really is that market analysis. But then if someone's still very close to that, I think then you got to go and ask those hard questions. Of course, it's best if they can self-reflect on that. Why am I resisting this? Like why, when I see five other homes in my neighborhood and the cost is 30 grand lower, why do I struggle with that? Um, That would be hopefully something that someone would do and reflect on. But again, it's that lack of insight to some degree. That's the problem when we talked about the endowment effect, which is, that natural inclination to value my home higher and the new home even lower, even though they're the same. It's just that recognition that, okay, I need those facts to maybe bring me down because I have overvalued my home. So in hopes, the facts would be helpful. But I think at first, then you're going to, I imagine you've seen all kinds of reactions from people when they first get like, I think my home is worth $500,000 and it comes in at three fifty. dollars um, That's going to be a game changer. So it, I'm thinking there's a moment there too that there's just time to process those facts because it's not going to be a light bulb that just flips and accepts that. It is going to be time and repeating the facts, I think, to get to a point of accepting it if they want to sell. That's true. And, you know, this is probably not the best response for a seller that doesn't want to, I would call it, own up to the fact of the true market value is. Sellers don't determine their market value, right? A buyer in the open market determines what they're willing and able to pay for a property. Right. They determine what they want. So, I mean, Chad and I, you know, learn that through market time. Like the houses that are, you know, worth it to a buyer get sold quickly and for list price or higher. The ones that are not generally end up getting sold for less and, you know, it, it, I think time on market, time cures all. So um, time on market is generally something that... Do you find that, um, this is an honest, genuine question, not knowing the field as you two do. If I if I want to overprice, or I don't think it's overpriced, right? But it is. If I, if I list my house much higher, and you're telling me, expert, that it is going to sit on the market for a while because of that price, and I say, okay, no problem. I'm fine. I'm going to wait it out. Do you ever leave as the realtor because you don't want to carry that house for a long time? Like, I don't know if, if like for my mind, it's a good aspect for you to be able to say, I sell houses within this amount of time. And so is there a risk for me to say, I'm going to wait this out and sell it for the price I want to? So this is what I teach my agents. 
you have to look at the market, right? You have to look at how much inventory is on the ground and how long things are taking to sell. And if you're overpricing a house and everything's taking longer to sell, like how much time do you want to spend invested into an overpriced house when you could be selling six or 10 current like price houses that are, are priced right. And I think every seller needs to see what the market will bring. So for me, I've only walked away from a couple and it was because I, I sense it wasn't just pricing that I would have issues with pushback from a particular seller. There's always ways we can say, you know, we can list it for a period of time. And if it, you know, doesn't sell, it means the, you know, you know, two weeks or a month to see if, you know, we need to make an adjustment. But I feel like when that, that happens and you're getting pushed back in the very beginning, the negotiation needs to happen. What's going to happen after that time period for that person to keep plugging along? Because the, the realtor spends time and money to list a property and they don't get paid until it sells. You know, I always say that both have to have some skin in the game. I mean, mm-hmm. I use this example all the freaking time. I sold my aunt's house in the middle of the country. She had blue walls. She had fire engine red cabinets <laughs> and a border that went atop her country kitchen. Her country kitchen was huge and it had flags on it. And I told her, you're going to have to neutralize this space because buyers are going to walk in and they're going to, their eyes are going to grow. Like their, their eyes are going to bulge out of their head. You have to, because not everybody wants a fire engine red blue kitchen. Right. And the first person that walked in on the open house wanted to buy it. <laughs> and it still looks like that today. So there is a buyer for every house. It's just a matter of time and how long it sits and how much marketing you've done, right? You know, if we're going to start right off the bat by the client not following my advice, nope, I don't have time for that. I don't do this for fun. This is not a hobby. This is a business. I am in it to win it. I'm going to bust my hiney to get you top dollar or bottom dollar, whatever, if I'm whoever I'm representing. If we're going to start off by you not trusting me and following my advice, we're not even going to do this. The reality is, and we have lots of data points to back it up, is that when properties go on the market overpriced, they end up selling for less than what they would have sold for if they had gone on the market priced right. You know, of course, that depends a little bit on the market and if it's a, you know, buyer's market, seller's market, whatever. But if you're wanting to maximize the dollars you receive when you sell, then you need to follow your realtor's advice. And then let's go back to the very beginning of our talk. If you're not ready, that's okay. If you have plenty of time to wait, by all means, wait. We can list it later. I could even keep it as a pocket listing, but I'm not interested in putting my reputation out there and overpricing houses. That's, you know, I I will say, hopefully they don't hear this podcast, but our neighbors across the street have put their house on the market, I want to say seven times in the last 10 years. It's never sold because they always overprice it. I said, oh, that's that's an interesting strategy. And the um, one of the owners was like, yeah, you know, we had to get a different realtor because our realtor got tired of messing with us. And I was like, I can understand why. It's a complete waste of our time. We don't do this for fun. Like, it might be fun. But this is not a hobby. This is a job. We have to remember, too, is uh, just because the seller wants to sell it for that, and let's say somehow we magically find a buyer that wants to overpay for the property, is it going to appraise? Mm-hmm. If we're not in a hot market and we don't have ridiculous things happening happening like they do in Austin, 
it's not going to appraise. It's not going to close anyway. So you're just going to spin your wheels and then we're going to have it under contract and back active. And that puts more downward pressure on the value of the house. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Chad, I want to talk about talking because, you know, talking, banter, chatter, you know, we've all had the client who showed up early and talked the homeowner's ear off or said something and they don't realize that creates that emotional fire that they didn't even know they started. So can you elaborate on what happens to those who talk too much when they're in the company of someone other than their own realtor? Yep, I sure can. There, there are two ways to kind of come at this. The one is for the buyers and the sellers. Do not talk to the other party. Like you might say, oh, it's, it's, uh, I don't even know if I do that. It's a pretty day out today. Well, here in Iowa, Heather and I know it's snowing. It snowed a lot. It's supposed to be spring break and we're a little pissy about that. Well, if I say, oh, isn't it a beautiful day to a buyer for my house? And they're like, no, no, it's not. We've done damage. And that's a super benign thing. If we want to talk about color of granite, paint colors, the way this one particular room is arranged, wouldn't it look better if this? No, stop talking. The other thing is for the agents. I can't tell you how many times agents talk and they really should not be talking. So here's an example. Way back in the day in Austin, I had a goal of selling every house on the street that I lived on. And I got to about 30% um, before I left that street. But the neighbor's house was listed with me. And the agent knew me, but didn't know I lived next door. And she just started talking up a storm. Oh, this buyer is fantastic. Oh, no, she did know I lived next door. This buyer is fantastic. You will love him as a neighbor. You know, he's coming in with an all-cash offer, so he's going to lowball a little bit, but he's got plenty of space. He could easily pay over full price for this house. And, you know, he wants this house because he's divorced and his daughter comes and visits him on the weekend. And this house has a fenced backyard and he wants a safe place for her where she can play in the backyard. And he loves all these tall trees. And I'm like, why are you talking? And so when I presented the offer to the seller, he thought, oh my God, this is great. It's a relatively quick close. It's cash a little lower than I wanted. I'm like, okay, but Judith, here's here's what else I know. Go down, and she was a social worker. So going down the list of things, and she's like, wait a minute. So we know he can pay full price. I'm like, we do. What do you suggest? And I said, I suggest you counter at full price. And she did, and she got it. None of that needed to happen. But the agent told me way too much information. My job is to represent the seller. So if you want to talk all you want to talk, have at it. But I'm going to use everything you tell me against you. That's my contract with my client. You know, when people say, well, is that ethical? I don't represent the buyer. I represent the seller. If the buyer hired someone that's not skilled in negotiation, that's really not on me. I didn't ask any questions. She just talked. The same thing true is for the buyer and the seller. No talky talk. You can talk after the house closes and funds. Yeah, that that leads me into, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I cannot stress the importance of hiring a good agent, even though, you know, even though I was a successful agent in another market in a different decade, we still hired an agent. The agent represented us. I did not negotiate directly with anybody. And that's a good thing. I trust, well, we trusted her. She knew her stuff. She also knew who we were, right? We didn't mess around. She knew that and she was able to articulate, look, these guys make clean offers. They're not dorking around. 
take it or leave it. They will also not respond to you responding with some crazy out of nut offer. We'll just walk. So hire a good agent, trust your agent. That leads me to some of my takeaways. So when you enter a relationship with the, with the, as a client, with a realtor, the realtor has a fiduciary duty and a responsibility to you. They're ethically bound to look for your out for your best interest. And that's what kind of Chad's alluding to. While it may be difficult to balance reason and emotion, the realtor you select to represent you should help you navigate that complex space, helping you to eliminate the necessary roadblocks and hurdles. You know, it's possible for buyers and sellers um, who are not investors to, it's not, it, it's impossible for, for buyers and sellers to be emotionless. So managing emotions and being emotional is crucial, but learning how to curb those emotions is important. So don't let pride get in the way of your pricing. For both parties to feel like they've achieved something, the pot of goodwill must still be abundant. Mindless or unnecessary talking can lead to emotions that often cannot be managed. And sound financial decisions are made based on facts while emotions are kept at bay. So Heather and Chad, thanks again for your wisdom, your time to help Texans better understand emotions and how they play a role in the successes and failures of buyers and sellers. Thank you, Jennifer. It was good to be here. Good to be here with you too, Chad. Yeah, thank you both. It was a great call. Great chat. Before I wrap, I wanted to give you a sneak peek on our next episode where I converse with Joey O'Brien, the owner of Inspected Austin. Joey's a respected home inspector in the Austin area. Um, during this episode, we'll dive into the various aspects of a home inspection, including how to understand the written report, when it's wise to seek an outside um, professional guidance, and mostly those questions to ask a home inspector to make sure that the chosen inspector is competent as they appear. Thank you to everyone at home or listening on the go. If you find this show helpful, please hit that follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for the show and it allows more people to find Urban Connect organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, please send an email to Jennifer at Urban Connect Podcast. I read every email I get, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note to tell me how the show has impacted you. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Jennifer Archambault, and I will see you on the next episode.